All right, I'm turning over to Psalm 96, and you'll want to have Psalm 95 there handy as well, probably just across the page or just the page before. And as we read Psalm 95, uh, Psalm 95 really goes along with uh, a psalm, the psalms that begin uh, really in Psalm 95 and run all the way to Psalm 100 that deal with this subject of singing a new song. And of course, these particular psalms, as we read them, uh, we certainly read the psalms with an understanding that there are uh, pictures, there are types, uh, there are also uh, characteristics of the Christ who would come, uh, the Messiah. Uh, Psalm 95 was uh, reminding us uh, that we are called upon by God himself to sing songs of praise. We are to sing God's praises. Uh, We are to uh, be uh, reminded of the entirety of what makes us joyful, uh, what makes us uh, have a, a joy that leads to an overwhelming praise because of what Christ, who is the rock of our salvation, what he has done for us. Uh, We can think about all the great things we could thank the Lord for. We could think about all the things that uh, we are certainly uh, privileged to know about the Lord. But there's no greater thing to know than to know uh, that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. And that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer of His church. He is the shepherd of His flock. Uh, The people of God are the very work of His hands. And uh, we, are, we have been formed uh, to praise Him. Uh, oftentimes we wonder, what are we here for? Why are we left here? Uh, why does God just not save us and then immediately transport us into the, uh, the, the, the realm of heaven? Uh, we are created to praise. We're created to sing a new song. And that's really what all of these psalms, beginning there in Psalm 95, running all the way to Psalm 100, deal with. On this past Sunday morning, I read Psalm 98, uh, which has been referred to, I, I don't necessarily take the same position that some have taken, but it's referred to as the Christmas Psalm because there are some things about uh, Psalm 95 that uh, make us think about Uh, what we celebrate here at this time of year. Uh, But one of the verses that we read on Sunday in Psalm 98 said, Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For He cometh to judge the earth. With righteousness shall He judge the world and the people with iniquity. Uh, We have been created uh, for His praise. Uh, We are under His care. Uh, We are kept by Him. We are fed by Him. He is guiding us all the way to glory. And of course, this exhortation, especially that we read in Psalm 95, was an exhortation in the context to the unbelieving Israelites, who he gives the example in Psalm 95 of those uh, who uh, perished in the wilderness, that when they were tempted, uh, when they were proved, uh, they were they perished, and he warns, "Do not harden your heart in the same way in which they did." 
So there is this real pattern that's running through um, all of these things. Uh, what is it to give praise and give glory unto Christ? Well, when we move over now to Psalm 96, and you'll notice there the very first, very first verse mentions the word sing twice, and then the word sing is mentioned again in verse number three. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord. Bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Uh, this singing that is commanded of God is a song that is in its nature a new song. Psalm 95 was a call of anticipation. It was written with the anticipation of his coming. It's told of us that we are to sing unto him. We are to worship and bow down before him. It's a call to Israel in the anticipation of their Messiah who would come. And when we get to Psalm 96, we see that he has come. And the result of his coming and the result of the nature and the understanding of Jesus Christ when he comes there will be this response of singing. There will be this response of thanksgiving. Uh, there will be a response of worship. Uh, now during this time of year, we often think about the visitors that were there in the manger. We think about those who came and, and uh, recognized the birth. And uh, even in those moments, there was a sense of worship but we have to remember uh, that as we look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, his actual coming again, his return to this earth, uh, we are in fact looking forward to someone that we have already been introduced to, someone we already know about, and someone that we sing praises unto and that we show day to day his salvation. And so these verses in Psalm 96 really remind us that the Lord Jesus Christ, he has come. He came and he has fulfilled the work in which the Father gave him to do. So we do see that the song of the Lord Jesus Christ is magnified in this Psalm 96. His, the praises that we sing are to celebrate his greatness. They are to celebrate his glory. We're to celebrate his majesty. We're to celebrate his honor. Why? For his salvation that he has made known. He is, in fact, as glorious as he seems to be. As a matter of fact, I would say he's more glorious than he seems to be. He is to be exalted above all else. Uh, there is this principle here of the coming of the Lord and the reality that his coming will lead even creation to break out in praise. And if we we're to break this particular psalm up into four main parts, verses 1 and 2, we see there is the command to sing a new song. The command to sing a new song. Really, we shouldn't have to be reminded to sing the new song. We shouldn't have to be reminded to sing the praise of the glory of Christ. It should be something that is his presence and his glory and his essence and his majesty is always before us. Now, there is, should not be a moment in our day where we're not thinking about his majesty and we're not thinking about his glory. 
a proper view of Christ would lead us to conclude that every part of our life, every part of this world, He is, he is glorified in it. His, his glory is shining brightly. I know we're living in a day that seems as if the days are getting darker and the nights are getting even darker. But I'd want you to know tonight that the glory of Christ is shining brightly. The glory of Christ is still just as bright as it always is. And there's never been a cause for you and I to stop singing praises unto Him. That new song of salvation, that new song of Christ and His, His being magnified as our Redeemer, as our Savior, as our Mediator. Uh, think about just His worthiness alone. Jesus Christ, equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit. But yet we refer to Him as our Savior. The new song here that's being called for by the psalmist, which I believe that this psalm was written by David as well, this new song that's being called for implies that there is a new occasion. There's something new to sing about. Uh, for those who uh, falsely claim that the Old Testament doesn't make mention of Christ, doesn't make mention of His coming, Psalm 96 is one that's so clearly pointing to Christ and pointing to He who is coming. And that the new song that's being sung is because it's the Christ who is coming, the Savior. This new occasion, this former songs that were sung before, now those old songs are not worthy of the new song that more accurately, accurately reflects who He is. Jesus Christ is in fact to be crowned Lord of all. Now, it has been noted that this particular psalm is part of the song where the Lord's praise was being celebrated with the story in 1 Chronicles when the ark was being brought with great joy from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. Uh, this, this is part of the song that was being sung as this, the ark was being transported from that city to the city of David. So there is even in that transporting in Chronicles of the ark moving from Obed-Edom over to the city of David. This was a prophecy that was pointing to the reality that there was a Messiah that was coming. There was a Jesus who was coming. And even the prophecy was being demonstrated there even in the book of 1 Chronicles. There was a prophecy of the Lord's kingdom and of the calling of the Gentiles to not only acknowledge Him, uh, but to worship Him. Christ is to be crowned in all of His glory. Christ is to be crowned with praises and the joy of His saints. And we sing that familiar hymn, Joy to the World. The joy is not some false manufactured joy. The joy of the world is Christ. The joy of the world is Christ. When we sing joy to the world, we're singing the result of what Jesus Christ coming into this world has done. It has led us to sing this new song. Oftentimes in Scripture, you see that praises and joy is accompanied by the sound of trumpets, by the sound of timbrels, uh, by the sound of the cornet. These were the worshipers expressing themselves 
Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Uh, I saw one commentator make mention of this. When we sing unto the Lord and sing unto the Lord all the earth, he said, try to exceed all of your former songs because they're not sufficient to utter forth His glorious praise. He said, every day, try excelling in your song from the day before. Sing in greater praise. Excel in your praising Him. Verse 2 says, Sing unto the Lord, bless His name, show forth His salvation from day to day. Again, three times in two verses, sing unto the Lord. Folks, you realize how deeply David, the author of this psalm, was engaged in worship at this moment. This was not some half-hearted, frivolous worship. His heart is entirely engaged in the worship. You know, it's, it is, it's easy for us to sometimes just go through the motions of worship. We know the right posture to take. We might even know the hymn. We might even know the verse that's being preached because remember, preaching is an act of worship as well. Often that gets overlooked. Worship is not just the hymn singing. Worship is, is the preaching of the Word of God is an act of worship. But think how often, and again, this is not meant to be an emotional slight on any of us, but how often are we totally and fully engaged in the worship of Christ? But how many times are we just going through the motions because it's what we do. David, in this psalm, is entirely engaged in the subject before him. Notice he says, saying unto the Lord, bless his name, or bless the name of Jehovah. Jehovah fully proves that there was a Messiah, that there was a Messiah that was coming. And the object of this song and the praise and the honor would be for this Jehovah, this Messiah who was coming. Notice specifically, he says, bless his name. He himself is the blessed one. Jesus Christ is the blessed one. He is, he is the Son of God. He is who blesses the entirety of His people. He is who blesses the church. He is the one that blesses not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, those who would be His. Oh, bless His name. Let your mouth and your mind be in continual praise and worship of Christ the King. You know, often people make mention that this time of year is a time when we really have opportunity to show forth His salvation from day to day, which is the next phrase that the psalmist David writes. But you don't realize we're supposed to show forth the salvation from day to day, not just during this time of year. Now, we get this opportunity once a year, and I know there are many people who are on a whole bunch of sides of whether or not the church should even celebrate Christmas at all. I get it. But I will tell you this, that if anything, it's another opportunity in another week to glorify and sing the praises and show forth His glory of His salvation from day to day. So while you're arguing about whether we should or we shouldn't, here's another opportunity to show forth His praises. To show forth His 
salvation from day to day. There is nothing more you could be fully, properly engaged in than praising the very glory of Christ. You're never going to find the Lord Himself saying, stop praising the Son so much. You're never going to find in Scripture where God says, you need to tone down your praise. You need to only be half-hearted engaged in your worship. No, every time you see worship being mentioned, you see it not just a worship that is, is, is loud and is, is uh, it's exciting, but there's times of worship where we are laying flat on our face before God. See, worship is not just an emotional experience. I would tell you it's not an emotional experience. It's the reality of how does God tell us to worship Him? And we know that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. But we show forth His salvation from day to day. Think about the Trinity involved in our redemption. The Trinity involved in our salvation. How He, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, from everlasting, raised up in the covenant of grace, the purpose of saving the elect and bringing them to salvation and to raise them up in spite of the fall of Adam and to provide a remedy and to provide a way to give salvation. It was covenanted. There was a covenant of grace. We understand that Jesus Christ came in the incarnation by His obedience and by His sacrifice. He completed the work of salvation in its entirety. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless His name. Show forth His salvation from day to day. How do we do that? We preach His name. We evangelize with His name. And we let that be our one great and grand object and subject. The Apostle Paul said, I will glory in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about what Paul was saying. I will boast in nothing except the grace and the cross of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 3, we see the greatness of the Lord being declared. Verse 3 says, Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all people. Declare His glory among the heathen. The very glory of Christ describes the personal person of Christ, the mediator Christ, the essential Christ, the very glory of Christ is being revealed in the gospel. When you and I preach the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, we are revealing the very glory of Christ and who he is. We freely, willfully preach his glory and preach his gospel folks when is the last time the wonders of his grace have really truly arrested you now i'm not talking about being able to talk about grace now we're all i hope aspiring theologians okay i hope you all are aspiring theologians you want a deep theology theology matters Theology, your doctrine, it matters.
But I also tell you this, if you truly look to the theology and the doctrine of God, you cannot help but be arrested by the wonders of grace. And you cannot help but be brought to a place where you are finding yourself saying, I have got to praise Him for what He's doing because the the wonder of grace is overwhelming me by what He's done for me. Don't ever become so to the point where you lose sight of the wonders of what His grace really means. He says, declare His glory among the heathen. We ought to declare those wonders of grace among the heathen, those who do not know Him. It deserves our attention. It deserves our response that we say we are to declare this everlasting gospel. Not just to the people who are receptive of it, but even unto the heathen. Unto the Gentiles, unto those who maybe will say, we want nothing to do with it. Look what it says in verse 4, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. He cannot be anything but praised. He is in every sense. And I want you to think about this for a moment. There is nothing about God that is not praiseworthy. Now, there's a world out there that wants to try to punch holes in that God is not good in every way. Or that God is somehow faulty. Or that God is something has something that just doesn't add up. You understand He's praiseworthy in every possible way. Everything He does is worthy of praise. Jesus Christ is worthy of praise. There is nothing that He has done or will do that is not worthy of praise. Jesus Christ is God. The very saving God. The God in which we praise. He is the great Himself. He even acknowledged Himself. I am that I am. God over all. He is the great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice again that phrase, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. What are some ways He's great? Well, think about the greatness in saving you. Do you realize, and this is hard to do this without putting this in human terms, but do you realize how greatly He had to save you to move you upon and move you above and beyond the guilt and the depravity? and the pollution of your own heart? He not only overcame that by saving you, but the Bible says He saves to the uttermost. And He doesn't save temporally. He saves forever. All that come to God through Jesus Christ, it is said about them that Christ ever lives to make intercession for them. He is greatly to be praised for all three of those things. But notice what it says. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. We shouldn't have to ask this question, but do we truly fear Him? 
Do we truly fear Him and reverence Him and magnify Him above all else? Do we hold Him above all gods, above all principalities, above all powers, above every name in earth or heaven? Is He truly above all? Now the psalmist moves into verse 5 and he makes a very interesting observation. Again, still in the context of the greatness of the Lord. He says, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4 makes this statement, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, but yet the Lord Jesus Christ would be sent with the everlasting gospel. He would go among the nations. He would preach to multitudes of sinners. His name would be magnified in the conversion of His redeemed. And yet, the vanity of the idol worshipers, the vanity of those who worshipped the wrong gods or the so-called gods would be fully manifested and fully revealed by the everlasting gospel of the blessed Jesus Christ we see the result that He is in fact the maker of the heavens and of the earth. He is truly God. All other gods are idols and are of no value at all. The Lord made the heavens. He is this author of eternal life. Verse 6, honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Think about where the Lord Jesus is seated at today. He is there in the office of mediator. In that seating on the right hand of the Father, He displays His love. He displays salvation. He displays honor. He displays majesty. He sits as a mediator at the very throne of God, at the right hand of God the Father. He has all strength. He has all power. He is perfectly beautiful, not only in its, His essence, but in His perfections. There is nothing about our Lord that is not beautiful and perfect. He truly reflects the glory that is due Him. This new song again, that is being sung, we're commanded to sing, is a song that expresses gratitude to Him and demonstrates an acknowledgement that we know what He has done for us. Verse 7 introduces the third heading. Again, these overlap a bit. This is the glory due unto His name and goes down to verse number 10. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Here, every nation, Gentile and Jew alike, are called upon to give glory to our Lord. Now, we understand that there is coming a day, and this will be perfectly fulfilled, when Jesus Christ will come, and He will come and His kingdom will be fully established, and every nation and every tongue and every tribe and every kindred, people from every walk of life, will give unto the Lord the glory that's due unto His name. They will be bringing forth this song. 
these songs that they will sing that will show forth His salvation from day to day, they'll be bringing, even at that moment, a new song to celebrate His glorious grace once again and the glory and strength that's due unto Him. Often people say, what does this song sound like? What are the words of this song? The words of this song would be words that reflect and demonstrate the greatness of Christ's person. There'll be no emphasis in the new song about the greatness of us. It'll be about the greatness of Him. You know, one of the things that we have to be careful of is being sure that we're not giving some of the glory unto our own name and giving some of the glory unto our own selves and remembering that all the glory belongs to God. David here is crying out as an ambassador for Christ and he is saying, give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. In other words, he's saying, yield yourself up to the Lord, submit yourself to Christ, Trust Him wholly for your salvation and trust Him wholly from saving you from all of your sins and protecting you and removing you out of the hands of all of your enemies. Give all of your spiritual strength unto Him. Notice we've seen the words sing. We see the words in verses 7, we see the word, it's give. Give. Verse 8 goes on and makes the same mention of this idea of give. Give unto the Lord, the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. What is the glory that's due? The glory that's due to Christ is for His saving work. For the love that He's demonstrated towards His sheep. For His characteristics of mercy that's been demonstrated towards us, for the compassion that He has on us, for the compassion He has on His church. Folks, you realize there are not enough words, there's not enough that we could give back to Him that would be good enough to describe and illustrate all that we owe Him. But yet, David says, give unto the Lord the glory that's due unto His name. His name is above all other names. His name is beyond anything else we praise. His name is above anything else that we consider great. All of the offerings that David is mentioning here, of course, there are pictures here of the worship and under that particular time frame, the offerings that were being brought, even in David's time, these were symbols. Oftentimes they were memorials. They were pictures of what was coming. They were, the offerings were there to demonstrate or typify the putting away of sin. The putting away of the transgressions. The Old Testament was expected to bring an offering and was expected to come into his courts. Verse 8 is very much an Old Testament expression of how you gave the Lord the glory. You gave the Lord glory by bringing that offering and you came into his courts. Remember, 
that we've seen that even in some of the, uh, back in Psalm 95, verse 2 said, Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. Come into his courts with thanksgiving. We see that in other psalms. Indeed, this is one of the great privileges and one of the greatest acts of worship is to trust the Lord in an everlasting fashion for the removal of all our sin. Verse 9, O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness or in the glorious sanctuary, fear before Him all the earth. Remember, Old Testament pictures here. The temple was the seat of God's worship in Judea. But you realize the temple and its symbols was so full of Christ. Everywhere you looked in that temple, Christ was there. Every object you looked in the temple, Christ was there. He was expressed in symbols. He was represented by everything in it. And everything belonged to Him. In that very place, the temple, God the Father... God the Son, God the Spirit, in the temple, the Old Testament, all three of them were being acknowledged and worshipped. Yet you realize when we worship Christ, we acknowledge all three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. There is an acknowledgement of the covenant relationship that we see in Christ that God has towards His people. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. Come and worship the Lord in His glorious sanctuary. Come and worship the Lord at His temple. It's called the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. What a remarkable picture this is. To really see that the bond of faith, the bond between the saints, whether we're Jews, whether we're Gentiles, the bond in the faith is the Spirit. And the presence of the Spirit that dwells within us is the evidence that you are a recipient of Jesus Christ's saving work. The evidence of your salvation is not what you pray. The evidence of your salvation is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, you cannot be one of His. So that tells us something about proper worship. It is only proper worship that is worshiped in spirit and in truth. Which means that in order to properly worship God, it must be worship that's offered in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. Verse 10, he says, Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth, the world shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. We may look at this and we might say, is this good news or bad news? This is glorious news. This is blessed news. It's to be published among the heathen that the Lord reigns. Not that He might reign, but that He will reign. And there is coming a day when every single enemy of His will be made His footstool. Biblically, we are told that and we are promised that. Folks, this is the very doctrine that gets established in His churches today. We don't talk about the Lord someday is going to reign or the Lord someday is going to do this. The Lord is someday going to be this. We worship Him now because we understand that the Lord reigneth. 
He reigns now. Now there's coming a day when Jesus Christ is actually returning and every eye is going to see him and the kingdom of God is going to be ushered in just like we're expecting it to be. But don't lose sight of the fact that the Lord reigns now. The world is going to continue. Folks, let me encourage you with this. And I hope this helps you. And this is what helps us with sovereign grace and election and predestination. The world will continue exactly as it is until all of the elect have been called by his effectual calling. Not a moment sooner. Not a second sooner. The purposes and the plans of this Jehovah, the glory of Christ that is occurring right now, the world is going to continue as it is, but with this one understanding that when the last of his elect by the effectual calling of God is complete. He's coming back. He's coming back. That reign, the Messiah, the Bible says at the end of this particular, we saw at the end of verse 95, but all, or chapter 95, but also 96, it says, for he cometh, for he cometh. Look, it says it twice. To judge the earth, he shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. His reign is going to be perfectly righteous, perfectly glorious. The gospel is going to prosper. His kingdom will be great and it will be greatly enlarged throughout the earth. And there's coming a day that not a single thing is going to be moved out of place. It cannot be moved. Christ is going to come again and all is going to be put in its proper perspective and proper place. The final heading here begins in verse 11 and this really is the celebration of His coming by creation. The celebration of His coming by creation. Notice the words here. Verse 11, Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar, the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Let, then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice. Notice this is creation celebrating and rejoicing. It is very uh, interesting when you read through this and you think about how do the trees rejoice? How, do the, how does the heavens rejoice? How is the field joyful? You understand that there is a season that is already fixed in time in the divine will of God. When Christ is going to, and folks, I hope this will encourage you on the end. Right now, we're kind of seeing things through this veil. But there's going to come a day when Christ is going to rule openly. Wide open. To where everything, He will be acknowledged as King. He will be acknowledged as the king of all nations. He will be universally proclaimed that the Lord reigneth. And if you don't think this is beautiful, he is going to judge the people righteously. You realize that's a fault in humanity. Humanity cannot judge perfectly righteously. With perfect justice with perfect objectivity with perfect discernment 
And because everything and everyone is being judged righteously, this is the effect that even the heavens are going to be glad about that. Now, I can't put this really into an illustration other than we've got to trust what the Bible says here. We've got to trust what the Bible says in all ways, but what, what is it going to look like when the heavens rejoice? Somehow, some way, all of creation is going to worship Christ. <laughs> our, hum, our human minds can associate people worshiping him. Our minds have a real struggle to get to how do the heavens rejoice? How is a field going to be joyful? How is the sea roaring going to be a sign of rejoicing? And it's all expressive of the satisfaction that Jesus Christ's reign is going to be. Now, I believe that these particular things, now again, people often say, well, I'm a literalist. I, I believe everything literally, and I understand what they're saying. But I, I honestly think what's happening here is I think these are meant to be, in some sense, a figurative expression that would give us this idea that if the heavens could speak, if the heavens alone could speak, even they are going to rejoice in Christ's reign and in his perfectly righteous government. You realize we have never in all of the human existence had a perfectly righteous government. Yet people think you can have that now. You'll never accomplish that now until Christ is ruling in perfect righteousness. If the heavens could speak, they would rejoice in Christ's reign. If the earth could speak, they, it, the earth would be so glad for this occasion. If the sea could express itself, it would be with a loud roar. If you've ever stood on a beach and listened to the waves hit the shoreline, especially if it's particularly rough that day, it's an awesome sound. To just listen to it. And the figurative speech is being given here as if the sea could speak regarding this ruling of Messiah. It would be loud and it would be full and it would be a roar. Think about this. In the days in which Christ will reign, all sin will stop. You and I cannot even, in our deepest imagination, even think about all sinning stopping. But yet, it'll be a perfect without sin. The heavens will no longer be eyewitnesses to the awful depravity and wickedness of man. If the heavens could talk, think about what they see in humanity. And I'm being a little bit figurative there, but if the heavens could talk about what it has seen, what are the heavens, what have they witnessed? Think about the horrible things. The heavens will never see 
Again, we cannot ignore it. We'll never see another abortion. It'll never see it. It'll never see the taking of another life in any way, shape, or form. It'll never see sin of a person against another individual. It will now see a reign that is marked by sinlessness. It will see there is no longer blood being shed. There will no longer be the burden and the oppression of sin. There will no longer be the consequences of sin. Folks, we really don't understand this either about how deep and far and wide the consequences of sin run in our everyday life. And there's coming a day when it's all going to be gone. Yet you and I can take hope today by understanding that we worship a Christ. We worship a God who reigns now. We live with hopeful expectation that we know what's coming. That the fields can be, the, the fields would even be joyful. That all of nature, all of creation is worshiping in the government of Christ. We might say that verses 12 and 13 really are what's often referred to as a doxology. It expresses an acknowledgement of that which is. Revelation 5.13 says, Every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Verse 13, Before the Lord, for he cometh, he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Those words are words that certainly bring us to a place of worship. When the reign of Christ is brought to us, we certainly will see some of those words that Christ himself made mention of. Again, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 and 7, he says, Behold, I make all things new. For these words are true and faithful. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. In those words of Revelation, when the Lord comes to be acknowledged and crowned as the universal king, the church will respond. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar, the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful in all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. When Christ reign, and he reigns in a visible manner. Folks, there's coming a day when there will be a universal acknowledgement of him, which seems so far away right now, does it not? You look out into the world today, it seems like we're so far away from an acknowledgement universally of Christ. Because in a sense, we are. But one day, there will be a universal acknowledgement of Him. His coming in the flesh was a matter of compassion. It was a matter of dealing with our need of a Savior. And it has brought us unspeakable joy. 
Folks, without his saving mercies, there would be no reason for you and I to be here tonight even attempting to worship him if it wasn't for the incarnation and it wasn't for him coming to this earth, living that perfect life, fulfilling the law, dying on that cross, being put in that borrowed tomb, raising from the grave three days later. It's a matter of unspeakable joy. Remember, he does all things good. He does all things right. He does all things well. The Lord is coming again. And it will be a matter of praise. But until then, may we take the words of the psalmist. O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the earth, unto the Lord, all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless His name. Show forth His salvation from day to day. My prayer is that we leave here tonight showing forth His salvation from day to day. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for this song. It has been, for me personally, a matter of just unspeakable joy to consider and to meditate upon and to think on. But Lord, I realize that even in my own thoughts, apart from the Spirit, they would never be effectual. They would never bring me to a, a complete understanding of the praise that is due unto our Lord's name. And Father, I pray that tonight, through the Spirit, that we would be given this understanding of this command to praise and this command to be reminded of the glory of Christ and that Christ would indeed be our all and all and that we would look for Him and look for the praise of Him in everything that we do. May we truly believe that He is the name which is above all names. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Father, even during these days when the world, even in, its, even in the smallest sense, may be thinking along the lines of Jesus in some way, shape, or form, may we use these opportunities to show forth His salvation from day to day. May the glory of Christ lead us and guide us. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. What's